What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Aaron Neville, who's got a brand new autobiography, Tell It Like It Is. Aaron, why a book? Why now? See, like Aaron, why not? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know how many more years I had, so I figured I should do it while I'm still got on my mind, some of my mind anyway, you know, what's left of it. <laughs> so, how did you actually write the book? With a wonderful writer, her name is Beth Edelman. And she told me the first thing, said, I want this book in your voice. And that's what we did. She put it in my voice. Well, it absolutely seems that way. Okay, a couple of things. You mentioned a number of things in your book. You say you're retired. Tell me about being retired. Well, I'm retired. Uh, when the COVID pandemic came, in 2020, uh, I was supposed to go to California, and Sarah told me she don't think I should be on an airplane for six hours and with, you know, with this thing going around, because they were t- taking people and taking the temperature, and if they had a fever, suddenly they put them in quarantine, and some of them wound up dying by themselves somewhere. And I just, you know, I'm glad she decided for me not to go. And, um, uh, through the years, I've, you know, I've been doing a little singing, but I have asthma, and I don't have the breath to you know, hit the notes like I used to. Just like Linda Ronstadt said, she didn't want to cheat the people, you know. I wouldn't want to go out there and think, oh, well, no, he don't sound like, you know, I don't, I'm not, you know, I got records, you know. That's, they can hear all they want from me on a record. I still call them records. I do, too. <laughs> okay. Uh do you miss it? You know, in a little, I don't miss none of the, the traveling and hotels and buses and all that, especially airports. I call that airport agony, especially what's going on right now. 
with people just getting stuck in the airports for a week. <laughs> and I've had that, done that, you know, your, your flight has been canceled and we don't know where your luggage is. <laughs> okay, you grew up in New Orleans, but you're living up in New York State on a farm. That's really different. What's it like? It's great. It's wonderful. I mean, this this uh, place we have is so beautiful, and it's like I call it enchanted forest because we have all kind of animals. We have deer, we have fox, we have rabbits, we have all kind of birds, and and it's just peaceful, you know. So like, uh, we kind of cut back on the farm some, but Sarah's still making the Aaron Neville. Elixir. She makes with a uh, turmeric, ginger, cayenne, uh, honey, lemon, and what else? Uh, apple cider vinegar, and something I drink every day. Wow, it's keeping you in good health. So, mm -hmm. but living in the city and living in the country is different. Do you have friends you see in the country? Are you more of a loner? Or are you a social kind of guy? What kind of guy are you? <laughs> I have three cats, a dog. Me and Sarah, you know, so, hey, I see the mailman. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I get out sometime. We, we took a ride yesterday. We were gone for like a few hours, get to see people. But uh, that's, that's enough for right now with all the stuff going on as well. And you talk in the book about uh, staying in contact with some people by the phone. So in phone or in email, are you staying in contact with people? How much are you talking, connecting? Um. I have a couple of few friends like Marvin. He and I grew up together. He's in the book. We've done some stuff together. That I ain't gonna talk about. Uh, Pity Pat. Uh, I talk to him every day. He's got cancer, and so I try to, you know, help him uh, uh, feel have a feel good day, you know. And my keyboard player Mike Goods. We talk every day, and I talk to my kids. And how about email? Do you use the computer? Nah, not really. I mean, I can send an email on my phone, you know, but computer, I'm, I'm, I'm not computer savvy at all. Okay, most of the book is about you growing up and all the bad activities and all the trouble you got in. Was that conscious? You wanted to lay that out? That There's mo much more of that than your music career. The thing about it, I couldn't have, you know, done the book without telling it all. You know, I'm telling it like it is and like it was. And that's how it was back in those days. I was stuck and stupid <laughs> a lot of times, you know. So tell me what it was like. You know, New Orleans has a different legal system. A lot of people, in what way, since you've traveled the world, is New Orleans different from the rest of the country and the rest of the world? Well, New Orleans is a... Uh, like my brother Cyril says, a, a island that's stuck on to the United States because it's a mixture of all kind of different cultures. You know, they have a uh, Caribbean, uh, French, Italian, uh, Cajun, Creole, you name it. And it's you know you you're born with music, all through your life there's music, and you're gonna die with music with the second line, you know. Okay, so. Uh Tell me about uh, your family growing up. So when what did your parents do for a living? Well, my dad, when we were kids, 
him and my, my uncle Jolly, who's my mother's brother, George Landry, they were merchant marines. They would go out on the, on the ships. A couple of times they got shot at, but one time they almost, the ship almost got sunk. And then when, the, when he was home, he, he was a cab driver. He worked in a furniture moving place. He worked uh, at a car place. He worked, <laughs> he worked at the boys' home. He was he was a he was a trooper, you know. And my mother, she took care of us while they were gone, and she uh, went to beauty school while we were in the project. Then she went to nursing school, so she could fix hair and help people in, in, in the hospital. And how many kids in the family? Well, there were six of us. There was Art, Charles, me, my sister Thelka, my brother Cyril, and our younger sister Cookie. She died in 1971. And, you know, if your father's out on the boat and your mother's there and there's all those kids, how much supervision was there or could you do whatever you wanted? No, it wasn't that. It was, it was a respect thing, you know. My mom was the greatest. When we were there, she would have us. Well, first it was just uh, me, Art, Charles. And when I was three years old, my sister came. And Cyril didn't come until about seven years later. So, But my mom used to be on the floor with us playing games and telling, reading stories. And whatever my mom should have done, she did it. You know, she always had a smile on her face and uh, always made us feel good, you know. And were you a good student, bad student? <laughs> I was a good student, but the thing about it, I always had a song in my head, you know. So I don't know if the teachers thought, the, the nuns thought I had ADD or whatever. Because <laughs> a lot of times I was like, you yeah. know, but a song going in my head. So tell me more about, you know, were there, was there music in the house and you started to sing along? How did you ultimately get interested in music and mitten by the music bug? <laughs> well, my mother and father were big Nat King Cole fans. They had all of his records and uh, Charles Brown and Louis Jordan, uh, Dinah Washington. And, and before we were born, my mother and her brother, Jolly, were song and dance team. I mean, they were the best dancers in New Orleans, and they had a chance to go out on the road with with Louis Prima. My grandmother wouldn't let them go because of the Jim Crow laws. They say she, they wouldn't have been treated night, right, you know. So my mother said that she would never stop any of us from our, you know, dream. So she let Charles go out when he was 15. She signed for me to play in the French quarters when I was 15 with a whole blind band. And uh, her, they used to put on a show sometimes, and, in our house in the project, the Jolly would throw my mom over his back and between his legs and Lindy Hop and all of that, you know? And she taught us how to dance. Okay, when did you realize you could sing? Uh, <laughs> my brother Art said, when I was a kid in the in the crib, I was just saying, until ah, <laughs> I fell asleep. So I guess I was trying then, but I used to mimic Nat King Cole and I used to sing my way into the movies. I was about 11, something like that. I'd sing Mona Lisa, pretend on the, on the net song, and they let me in, give me candy and all. And my brother Art had a doo-wop group. 
they would sit out on the park bench in the evening and harmonize. And they would go around and win the, the talent shows and get the girls and all, you know. And I used to run up to them and they'd run me away, get away from your kids, you know. <laughs> and I just, I was persistent. I kept on. It was odd. Guy named Issachar Gordon, we call him Isiku, and a dude named Turk. And finally, Is Isiku said, "Hey, Kevin, he called me Kevin. I don't know why, but I didn't care. Just let me, <laughs> let me sing." He said, "You hit this note," and he showed me the note. Then, before you know it, they were showing me all of the notes, how to do the harmonies, which I did later on with the, the Mickey Mouse march. I'm doing all the background while Dr. John is playing the keyboard. Rob Wasserman, Stardust, I'm doing all the background. Uh, the Neville Brothers, uh, Bird on the Wire, I'm doing all the background. And from them teaching me. Okay. And at what point did you say, I want to make it, This I want this to be a career? I didn't know about a career and all that, but all I knew, I, I wanted to sing. You know, I'd, I'd go to the movies and I'd look at the, the cowboys and I'd come out out, out the the moving back in the project and I'd be yodeling and you know had a mop stick named Kimo Sabi. <laughs> that was my horse. And uh it was just and my brother Art worked at a record shop and he used to bring on all of the records by like the clovers and um clovers the Sunny Till and the Oreos the Harp Tones, uh, and different groups. Clyde McFadden. Clyde McFadden was one of my favorite inspirations, besides Nat King Cole, because Clyde had that high tenor, you know. And my brother Art had, had a real high tenor, like strong high tenor. But I don't, I don't think they ever gave his voice the, the right, you know, Okay, what was it like growing up in the projects? Man, it was like paradise back there. You know, it, it was like a village. You know, everybody knew everybody. And uh, we had a big oval playground with uh, concrete that went around. We could skate on or ride a bicycle. We played football. We played marbles and spinning tops and kites, all in that, play, that space. And uh, it was like, you know, it was just a great place. And you talk about football. Were you a sportsman? Back in the days when, when I got to be a teenager, I played sandlot football, you know, on the levee, on the, uh, the medium, on the neutral ground. Okay. You talk about hearing about heroin and wanting to try it. You know, I was growing up, they had all these TV shows saying not to try it. <laughs> so what was it like? And tell me about that experience. Well, I heard all that, but not to try it. But I mean, something inside of me was inquisitive, you know. I was an inquisitive young fella. And uh, as soon as I got to be of age and I saw somebody else doing it, I said, hey, man, hook me up, you know. And it happened to be my brother with his girl. Bob and uh, so I was playing music on the weekends, making you know twenty dollars a night or whatever. That was big money back then. So I come to him and I told him that I wanted the school, you know. So they got it. And they talked me out of it the first time. No, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't. Oh, okay, 
I ain't gonna do it. Next time, next day, I said, I'm getting some more. I want you to get some more, and I'm gonna do it. And I did it, and it was on then. And so you did it. How did you do it? Did you snort? Did you pop? Do you inject? Uh, Charles' girlfriend, Bob, she tied me up and caught me with the, you know, in my van. She said, oh, you got the million-dollar vans. I had never done that until, you know, there was million-dollar vans then. And, uh, hey, I fell in love with it, and it wasn't in love with me, though, you know? And it didn't show me that till later on. So it lived up to your thoughts of what it was going to be. Oh, yeah. But many people say, like with any drug, you know, it's good at first, and then you're always chasing that initial high, and it never lives up to it. That's what they call chase the, chase, chasing the dragon, because you're looking for that first hit. You never get that number until you're OD. So, okay, you have this girlfriend, Joelle, but her family doesn't like you. <laughs> so tell well, me about that. Well, it's like this. Also, when I was 16, I got this tattoo in my face on my 16th birthday. Um, I had been down in the night ward. My boy Melvin had just moved down the night wards. So I went in the night ward was like, you know, a rough area. Because the guy back down there used to say, I'm from the nine and I don't mind dying. <laughs> All kind of stupid shit like that. And, uh, so I had Melvin's uncle's pistol with me. And we... Taking goofballs and all that, you know, obituous. And I'm, I'm down in the sweet, sweet shop looking at the record, sh record box and couldn't hardly see. And I had my hands in my pocket. And I felt some hands on my shoulder turning around. I thought it was Melvin going to introduce me to somebody. And this big tall guy turned me around and punched me in the mouth and knocked me back up against the record box. And I run my tongue across my teeth and he cracked my teeth. And that was the most, I didn't get, care, care about getting punched, but he cracked my teeth. And I come up and I shot him. And uh, me and Melvin left out the joint and ran. Because, I, I mean, we were scared. I, I, I didn't want to kill him, you know. But uh, then we found out that he wasn't dead. And but anyway, to say about my, my wife's people, I had a tattoo. I had to get gold teeth in my mouth from that punch, you know? That gold teeth. My hair was processed, we call it a conk. <laughs> so I, I, looking at it and I cannot blame Mr. Roof and I want me to come around his daughter, you know? So how did you convince them that you were okay? Cause she let them know that she wanted to be with me. So, you know, I'd go up there and sit on the sofa sometime and I'll play a piano or whatever. When her dad would come home, he, he used to work for his sister watching her ballroom, so he had his 45 come on one arm and the newspaper on the other arm, and he come in and said, hey, Mr. Root, and he said, he growled at <laughs> And he'd spank her from being with me, but she, you know, I don't know, I guess it was the bad boy in me, whatever she liked, you know. But we loved each other. Okay, let's go back a step. Tell us more about the dagger tattoo on your face. Well, back in the project, you know, the guys had a cross right here or something, or something here. 
One guy had a skull and cross. This was almost a skull and crossbone. I'm glad it wasn't because my daddy would have committed murder. <laughs> but with this, he made me scrub it with Drillo pad and octagon soap. And uh, I look at it now, and I have no idea why I've done that. <laughs> okay, so you're telling me at the time to have a face tattoo was not that uncommon where you were living. No, it wasn't. Okay, and then as you continued to live your life, to what degree did people comment about that tattoo or judge you based on that tattoo? Well, they had all kind of rumors out there. Later on, they said, oh, that tattoo stopped you from going on American Bandstand. I never was scheduled to go on American Bandstand, so that was just a rumor. And when I go on shows, they put makeup on to cover it up or whatever, you know. You also make the point about uh, the spot above your eye that your mother said that the doctor <laughs> said that he could have it removed, but you said it's like one of the greatest. She said no, and it's, you said that's one of the best things that's ever, you know, been about you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad she didn't get it taken off. You know, it's like, uh, it's me. And like when the guys used to call me and Melvin, Mole Face and Melvin, they thought I did, they were dissing me. I said, oh, yeah, Mole Face. <laughs> and I, after that, I used to say, when I got to be friends with uh, some of the wrestlers, Bret, Hart, Bret the Hitman Hart, uh, Cactus Jack, a uh, bunch of them, I used to say, if I was going to be in a wrestler, that my... Monica would be mole face. <laughs> but little kids are, you know, can be really mean. When you were a little kid, did people bother you about the mole? No, not really, no. I I think it was something God put there for a reason, you know. It it was like a beacon, you know, it was is the respect. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so you're growing up, you're growing in the projects. Did you feel, what was the vibe in the world you were living in that you could break out and become rich and famous, or it was about everyday life and just be happy where you are? It was everyday life, be happy where you are. I know nothing about no riches or anything like that. That never even crossed my mind back in the project. Oh, I was rich if I had a pocket full of marbles, you know, and some candy. I'm cool. Because like one of my first jobs at St. Monica's Catholic School was cleaning the, the boys' and the girls' bathroom. And I uh, keep me with enough money to buy marbles and candy. Ultimately, Joel gets pregnant, you get married, you drop out of school. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, we had went to the, <laughs> this movie. She told her mama was going to the movie. And, uh, she, and people always bragging about how many girls in the head and all that. Joel was the first girl I ever went with, you know. But uh, she told her mom was going to see a movie called Vera Cruz. And she got pregnant then, and we went back, and her mom said, well, what the movie was about? She said, oh, Vera was cruising. <laughs> her mom looked at her like she was crazy. But, uh, and then nine months later, Ivan came up, but he, they turned him, he was Aaron, and then they turned him in Ivan. Okay, what do her parents say when it turns out that Joelle is pregnant? I don't know what this, they didn't say nothing to me. They probably said they wanted to probably beat her. I don't know. Her dad would, you know, because he's a rough character. But Okay, so to what degree are you freaked out? You're still I'm not, a te- you're I'm not, not freaked, freaked out. out. I, I love Joanna. I wanted to marry her. I told my mom I wanted to marry her because we got married on January the 10th. And she had my mom assigned for me. I didn't make. 18 till January 24th. I couldn't wait that long. I wanted to, you know. And uh, Joel's parents, they didn't come to the wedding. And my friend Marvin, Melvin was in penitentiary, so Marvin was my best man. And uh, I think her friend Naomi was her maid of, maid of honor or whatever. And my parents were there. And that's when you dropped out of high school? Mm-hmm. And so how did you provide for the family? Well, I, I was working. I had jobs like uh, at one time helping to build pre, prefabricated houses. Uh, me and my friend Vernon, we started painting together. And uh, later on, I started working on the riverfront, but on, that was a while later on unloading cargo ships on the docks. Okay, so... Aaron is born, you get arrested, and the family changes his name to Ivan. Right. Tell us about getting arrested. <laughs> well, me and Marvin, Staggerly, Lil Red, and, and Charles, and a guy named Robert, was planning on going to this picnic that Joe's school was giving up 
I beat a spring, Louisiana. And uh, so me and Marvin said, we were going to get a car to go out there. And Robert Blaze said, well, I'm going to have my daddy call. And so sure enough, he came up and had his daddy's car, as we thought anyway. But me and Marvin had got one that night before and stashed it. So we all ran up to the picnic. And the whole while he's saying, oh, I'm going to call. I have to call the AA Motors. Something going to be wrong. My, my daddy called. He's going to be mad because I was supposed to be going to look for a job and blah, blah. He's putting it in our heads, you know. So meanwhile, something happened to the car, and me and Marvin and them got in the Ford and uh, drove to driving to the filling station to see if we can get something to fix the Chevrolet. And while we driving, some, some friends of ours passed in the car, and Marvin said, catch him there, and I stepped on the gas. <clears throat> And all of a sudden, I looked up and they didn't stop that intersection and I hit the brakes, the brakes went away. I said, brace yourself and we hit him and knocked him about half a block. Then we told them, said, look, uh, don't call the police. We'll straighten up. We'll straighten up when we get back in the and like, we could straighten up with anything, you know? So anyway, we done made our story. We wasn't in the fold, we was in the Chevrolet. And we walked down the highway and here come the police. Said, was y'all in that fold? No, nah, we weren't in the fold. We was in the Chevrolet. Come to see about getting something to fix it. They left, they come back then with two of them in the car with shotgun. Thought y'all said y'all wasn't in that damn car. No, we weren't in that car. Get your ass in this car. They brought us in the car, brought us to a little jailhouse. And uh, so we still, it's our story. We weren't in the fool, we in the Chevrolet. Police come, hey, you the driver. Driver? I'm the driver. I don't even have no driver license. <laughs> he said, come out here. I'm sitting in the car with him. He's in the front seat. He's hit, hitting a little slapjack in his hand like that. I said, now, Aaron, why you go on and tell me the truth? I said, I done told you the truth already. And here on the radio, come on. The Ford was stolen for so and so, and so, and blah, blah. And the Chevrolet was, no, did you lie? That's Robert Blair. <laughs> he said, no, I ain't no Robert Blair dead in the car. I said, hot car, y'all in. So both of them, damn cars hot. So that's how that went down. And how long were you in jail that time? Six months. So, now you talk about the state prison Angola as being pretty rough. Were you in Angola at that point? No, I was in the New Orleans Parish Prison. I, ne I looked like I was trying to get to Angola, but I never made it. My brother Charles did uh, almost four years in Angola for two marijuana cigarettes. So, uh, the guy did say, I'd be glad when they start giving y'all 10 years for stealing them people's cars. So, no, I went to Paris prison. Okay, so what was it like being in prison? It was, it was kind of fun, really. The first night I was in there, I had a dream that I had broke out, and I was having fun all around New Orleans, and all of a sudden I had to get back in or something bad was going to happen, and I'm trying every kind of way I can, but I couldn't get back in. When I opened my eyes and saw the balls, I said, <laughs> That was crazy. I mean, you know, it had... They had some assholes in there sometimes that did be fighting over stuff like looking at the television at the Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, and and that Funicello, that's my girl. I was here before you. That's getting a fight about that Funicello. <laughs> so we hear, you know, all about prisons with fights and gangs and arguing over stuff. Was that your experience? No, that wasn't all. That wasn't like that at all. They had. You know, some of the tears were like stupid. They had one tear called X tear, and they, at one time they was calling it the House of Shock because they had this guy in there, Irvin Celestine and Krabby. 
they were two assholes. I mean, they would they would be down there beating up dudes, and they wound up going to penitentiary doing the same shit. And uh, when I first went in, I I got a razor blade, and I melted it down in a toothbrush to make a shank, which I never had to use. I'm glad. And uh, we did a lot of singing, you know. Everybody go to jail, they think they can sing. So, you know, they start singing spiritual because they get the Holy Ghost. They want, oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> okay, what does Joel say when you get arrested? What could she say? I mean, I'm, I'm going to jail, you know. That's when they changed Ivan's name to, from Aaron to Ivan. And, it, you know, you make a big point about that in the book. Are you still pissed about it? Mm-mm. No. No, I mean, no. I got my understanding is way better than it was back then, you know. Okay, another thing which you referenced in your story with the Ford and Chevrolet is that you guys were stealing cars on a regular basis. Well, it, I don't know. They made it so easy. All you needed was silver paper out of cigarette pack, ball it up, put it behind the the ignition on the three screws and put it in loose and it started. I mean, you know, hey, who did something like that? So, would you steal a car because you had to get somewhere or would you steal a car because, like, there's nothing better to do, let's go joyriding? This joyriding, you know, that's it. And uh, one time, me and Melvin, we kept one for about a month. We had a red, uh, what it was, 51 convertible Plymouth. <laughs> we kept it for about a month. It was stashed, you know, be washing it like it was ours. That's crazy. <laughs> Weren't you worried that someone was going to be looking for the car? Well, we know somebody was going to be looking for it. I mean, you know, the one time me and Melvin riding and, and the police pull up on the side and look in the car and didn't see no key. <laughs> right, pull over. Yeah. No, you make a point in the book that you're constantly returning the cars in perfect shape. Well, Did you ever, unless but you must have cracked. You must have cracked up a few. Uh, no, but just cracked that one up coming from the picnic. You know, other than that, we parked them close to where we took them. And when did you get your first car? By 1978, it was uh, okay. the last of the big Thunderbirds. It was like my pride and joy. It was silver and red. And how long did you have that car? A uh, few years until, because uh, that was 78, probably until about uh, 80, maybe. Okay. So at this point in time, you're married, you get out of jail, you have a kid. What are you doing for work then? I had to work on the docks. On uh, I worked grain boats, I worked coffee boats. Uh, what else? Rubber, cotton, you name it. All them down the river. It never was in the same spot. You be, you know, that's what made it so cool, and it paid good. But that's backbreaking work. That's really hard work. Thing about it, I say, if another man can do it, I can do it. And, but that's probably how I messed my back up back then because, you know, we want, I didn't know about using your, your legs and all that. We just bent over and manhandling it, which is actually manhandling us. 
So, uh, but because the older guys, they had an initiative where they didn't make the thing. They had one initial lift, and the rest of the time it's guiding, just guiding it, you know, and they made it easy. And we caught on later on, but before that, we was breaking our back. But you go on that you have had back problems as a result of that. Probably that, that and other, I don't know what else. But I know I, I never used my legs to bend over and pick up heavy, you know, coffee sacks and the oil drums turning them. And, and they had this hook and the, and the glove on one hand. And one time I took the hook all in right through my wrist. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, painful. And to what degree are you singing at this point? Well, since you said that, I'd be down, down in the ship hole singing. And the guy said, man, you ain't got no business being in the ship hole. You ought to be on TV with uh, this or that, you know. And uh, I said, no, man, I got a family to feed, and I'm going to be down in the ship hole. One day I'll get out, you know. And how do you ultimately make records? Back then? Yeah. How did oh, you well, get your deal? You ultimately do Tell It Like It Is. How much recording? No, no. no. Before tell, tell It Like tell, It Is. Tell me like uh, the, Tell me the story. When I got out of jail in 1960, that's when Larry Williams came down and another disc jockey named Larry McKinley, and they hooked me up with Minute Records uh, with Alan Toussaint, and I uh, got to record my first record. Alan Toussaint wrote one called Over You. I wrote one in the, in the Paris prison called Every Day, along about noon, I'm dreaming of the day that I'll be home soon. Every day along about three, I'm dreaming of the day that I'll be free. You know, and that was my first record. And that's when I went on the road with Larry Williams. Okay. You make the point that even though that was a gigantic hit, you got almost no money. <laughs> no money. Well, I mean, the, the first one, they was telling you that, uh, oh, you know, go get the Baton Rouge or something like that, you know, but I found out Over You was on the charts, on the R&B charts anyway. It might have been on the regular chart, I don't remember, but a while back. But uh, I went on the road, and I remember Ray Charles told me he really dug that song, Over You. So let's just go back before you're on the road. To what degree is racism a problem in, in New Orleans when you're growing up? With what? Racism. Oh, race. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, think about it. We didn't let it bother us. It was a place where you know you could go and a place you know you wasn't supposed to go. You know, but uh, we, we went, sometimes ventured in the place we weren't supposed to go. And, uh, like, like I said, uh, Sometimes you go in a grocery store and buy something, and you give the person the money, they throw your change back at you, or something like that. And you know, and uh, like in the project, I didn't know anything about no racism, you know, because the only white people I saw really was the priests and the nuns at the school, or the grocery man, whatever, you know. And most of the guys around the project, they were cool, but you know, you. On Valence, after they moved on Valence Street, there at uh, La Bruzzo's grocery, this guy, he was nice. But the majority of them, they, were, they didn't want to touch your hand and shit like that, you know. And, uh, 
but you you talk about the police stopping you for no good reason and putting you in jail for 72 hours yeah well that was the thing there's a thing called pending investigation so uh, me and my boys we'd be you know just hanging there. one time the police come got me over my mama's step his name was turtle and uh he said aaron come get in the car i said man what i'm going to jail for he said oh we think of something by the time we get to the precinct you know stuff like that and uh there one night in the alley between two ballrooms, me and my brother Cyril and a guy named Jake, who I made the song Brother Jake about, his name was Alfred Rudolph. The police had come and told us, I don't want to just stand in front of, in front of the bar. And, and Cyril said, man, I'm tired of being like a roach. Every time the light come on, we got to run. And so we, Jake pulled up there and I went out to tell them to come on the joint. And the police must have just Pop around the corner, to come swoop right around it. So me and Jake and Cyril went back in this alley. And they, one of them stood by the gate. I'm gonna tell you their name, Barard Marie. Marie stood by the by the gate. And Barard came in, and for some reason he hit Cyril with Cyril and Jake, they were militant, you know. They, they were like the Cyril's name was Umbuku. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he hit Cyril with that big long flashlight. And I saw a color I had never seen before. It was like called the moment of truth. I grabbed this guy's hand. And if he's alive today, he got my fingerprints in his, in his wrist. And I looked him, I could see the man at the gate saying, playing, please no, because he saw what I was going to do. I was going to grab the gun. I said, he hit my brother back in. I said, we're all going to die in this fucking alley. You know? And he was trembling. And, and suddenly the guard was there. God said, no, Aaron, go on, go to jail and get this shit over with, you know? So I told Cyril, come on, let's go and get out, go to jail, go to uh, Central Lockup. They put us in the car, brought us to Napoleon and Britannia. They had about seven cars of police waiting. If I wouldn't have been there, they probably would have killed Jake and Cyril. But the man howling them, pulling them out of the car. They told me, Aaron, get out of the car. They know who you are and all that shit, you know. And so I told Cyril, I said, man, be cool. Let's go to jail and get this shit over with. So we did. And that's when Jake, we got out, Jake started in a song. I said he had to ride the rail because he was started hitchhiking, I mean, uh, catching freight trains around the country. And he went all the way around, come down to Florida, come back to New Orleans and went around one of the score places. And the dude caught him off guard and, and hit him and knocked him down and head hit the curb and he died. And, uh, so me and Cyril, we had went to New York by Charles. And we come back, we're in the ballroom, hear the police coming and Sam too. And I said, okay, we're going to get this shit over and knock that warrant out for us, you know. So we get in the car and went down and, and just squashed the shit. And, but, and while we're in the car, we're all looking at Aaron Neville, Cyril Neville, Alfred Rudolph, DOA. Yeah, I was glad to hear that. Sarah so said, yeah, you probably had a nut on that, huh? <laughs> I said, Sarah, please cool it, man. <laughs> Let's go down and get this shit over with. And so we did. And, but it was one of them things, you know, like, uh, you're in there for 72 hours. And every time the shift changed, they bring you to the central lockup, put you in front of the, the lineup. 
And if you happen to look like somebody, you can get, wind up with a charge on you. So, yeah, it was, that was part of my growing up, you know. So the people you grew up with, your friends, how many are still alive and how many died before their time? Most of them died before the time. Marvin is still here. Don Hubbard is still here. Uh, Pity Pat, the one I'm talking, he's got cancer now, but he's, I talk to him every day to lift his spirits and all, you know. But that's about it, you know. Another one just died. He wasn't in the game, and he just, it's time to get out of here, you know. But most of them gone. I saw them fall by the wayside. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you're in New Orleans. Fats Domino's from New Orleans. He's gigantic in the 50s. To what degree were you aware of the musicians who were successful? And to what degree did you come to know them? Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, all these other people. Well, Fats Domino, we all thought he was the, you know, rich or whatever. And uh, Dr. John, he and I ran the streets together back in the days, you know. The first time I went to the studio, he wanted me to do some background on somebody he was recording. Alan Toussaint, he recorded all my first stuff on Minute Records from 1960 to about 64, something like that. Well, Alan and uh, Mac were, were, you know, these are icons in yeah. America and the rest of the world. Were they icons in New Orleans? Oh, yeah. No doubt. Re- respect. Okay, so Ulta, you're on tour with Larry Williams uh, based on your hit. 
Eventually, you go to Los Angeles. You fly there because Larry Williams is going to help you make it. Larry Williams has some success, but he turns out to be a crook almost for sport. <laughs> well, he was when we was on the road, he said, I'm tired of being pimped out here. That's what he called it. He said, I'm going on and pimp. And he went back to L.A., and he did. So when I got up there, he picked me up from the airport. He stopped off at a one of his little motels, like, talked to one of his women. And I can hear him, up, you know, speaking loud to her or whatever. And I'm sitting in the car, and the police pull up. The guy said, hey. He was polite. I said, hi, how you doing? He said, uh, uh who are you? I said, I'm Aaron Neville, blah, blah, blah. So what are you to Mr. Williams? I said, well, he's going to be my manager. Your manager? What are you? You you a sticker man, a burglar, or what? A pimp? I said, no, I'm a singer. He said, okay, well, they call me Red. I'm over. I'm out of Wilshire District. I said, I see you over there. And a few days later, I saw Red over there. He said, I told you. <laughs> and that, that, it was on every time we left the, the house, we it picked up half, half the time. Now, ultimately, you get arrested and join a firefighting crew. Tell me about that. Well, that happened on, I had done maybe three burglars. This was the third one. It was on Sunset Boulevard. And a guy had rented a step-in van with the sliding doors. And it was a, a men's clothing store. And it was next to a woman's clothing store. The men's clothing store had a burger alarm. So they popped the lock on the woman's store and went through the wall. Had a hole this big, but for, you can walk, walk through with an armload of suits. So it looked like somebody had saw us, and everybody left and went different spots. And me and a guy named Steve sat out on this bench on Sunset. So he said, everything quiet, I'm going to go check out. So he went and he stayed. I said, oh, must be all right. So I went back. As I was coming towards the truck, I heard some talking. So I slid the door open and got in and slid the door back closed. And I could hear him as they're getting close and the guy, Michelle, someone's in the place. And I'm high. I'm, I had done hair on and weed and coke. So I had to do that to be done, that dumb shit. So I'm, I'm all kind of visions going through my head. I'm trying to picture it. And the guy hollered, hey, what are you doing there? And the lad said, man, we clean up, leave us alone. And the lady said, I didn't hire nobody to clean up my place. And that shit was so funny to me. <laughs> I was tumble sitting back and forth in that damn truck. And all of a sudden, I could hear Larry come out. And they got in a squabble, and Larry hit the dude and knocked him down. The woman started screaming. The parking lot filled up. I'm trying to get the door open, and it would not open for nothing. It would not budge. Until the sheriff of Hollywood and all of that. Then it slid open like it was greased. I sit on the on the running board, lit a cigarette, and just waited. You know, and he come up, say, what's happening? I said, I guess I'm busted, you know. But they ran Larry and them all through the Hollywood Hills and uh put me in the car with the handcuffs behind my back from about that was about ten o'clock to about three in the morning while they come in the hills. And right now I gotta click my thumb to get it right from that handcuff being so tight on my on my wrist. And uh so anyway, 
The man asked me who was there. I gave him some phony names. He knew I was lying. He said, uh, I'm going to send you to San Quentin. I said, well, I guess I live to San Quentin. And uh, Larry got me out on bond, got me a lawyer. And the lawyer talked to the probation department and all that. So uh, I went to court, found guilty on two counts of second-degree burglary. And they let me go home for about a month to, you know, for come back and do my time. So when I come back, uh, Larry had set it up for me to hang out with these two girls, then Audie and Kim, who I called Chocolate and Vanilla. And uh, I was high. I don't know what the hell happened at that. But they were giving me a send-off party. And I was trying to get high enough so I could feel them when I got to jail. <laughs> when I got in front of the judge, it was supposed to be Judge Brand, who my mom and Joel had wrote letters to and all, and he was supposed to go light. And instead, Judge Brand was on vacation. This other guy was in there giving out time like it was free ice water or something. Five to life, 10 to 20, you know, all that kind of. And I'm thinking about running, and I kept saying, no, if you run, you ain't going to be able to sing. So you got to take your issue. So I stood up in front of the judge and Felt like I was about two feet tall. And he said, Aaron Neville's found guilty on two counts of second degree burglary. I finally sent you what the law prescribed. He'd been saying that to everybody. You know, my heart just sunk. He said, one to 14 years in San Quentin. And he said, but, when I mean, he said, but, I was holding on to a piece of kite thread. But what, man? <laughs> he said, I suspend that sentence and put you on a three year probation. Providing you do the first year for the county. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, St. Jude. You know? And uh, so I was cool, you know? And I got that to the central, I mean, not central, like to LA County. And they had me handcuffed with this black dude from Cal from Texas. Tall, lanky dude. He walked around like he was the baddest lion in the jungle, you know? Everybody coming, man, get out of my way. I said, man, you better freeze that shit, man. Anyway, we're walking through the, through the L.A. County. They got about 10 guys together. And some dude in the cell, take that fucking hat off. And the old guy, was doing, I didn't even have no hat. I said, tell your mama to take her hat off, sucker. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm ready for whatever. So first thing the man said, well, do you want to do your time inside, outside? That's a no-brainer, man. I'm going to do my time outside. So okay. So I went to Wayside Honor Rancho, close to Pasadena, up in, uh, in uh, what month that was. Anyway, they had a forest, forest fire camp where they teach you how to fight forest fires. And the place was like a little town. It had like a, fit the barracks on one side, fit them on one side with library to, uh, where you eat and everything in, in the middle. And on the end there, where you train for the forest fire. And I tried to suck up everything and try to learn it to the utmost so I'd be safe. And this guy, Robert, he walked down the, the, the walkway. <clears throat> Get out of my way. And he messed with a couple of dudes. One dude had him hemmed up against the, the building and shit. It didn't deter him, though, until we got to 
Camp 18, which was, we lucked up and got uh, officers' barracks with bricks and had a state-of-the-art gym, cafeteria and everything. All the rest of the camps were like shacks, wooden shacks. So Robert's still acting stupid. And he messed with the little white dude and I take his food or some shit. Dude had him turned upside down. So they went to Siberia. That's what they call the hole. You don't want to go to Siberia. So we never seen him anymore. And one day I'm, the, the sergeant took a liking to me. He said, Aaron, what you doing in a place like this? I said, I done some stupid shit, man. I got to pay for it, you know? And one day I was, he got me to buff his, his office, you know, with the buffing machine. And one of my records came on. And the man said, that was Mr. Aaron Neville. So I said, no, you mean Mr. O sixteen nine fifty five? And we laughed about it. Yeah. So it was cool, man. I was glad I was there. And the forest fires back then wasn't like they are today, though. They're, today they're on steroids. So how depressing was it to be in the work camp with your re- record on the radio and having been on <laughs> tour as a singer? It wasn't depressing at all. I figured I was in the right place. I was satisfied. I wasn't getting no visitors, but this this guy from Menden, Louisiana, his family would come up and his mother would call me out, you know, to sit with them. I mean, I was, I was, I mean, it's uh, two Chicana dudes, one named Pedro and John, we worked out together and I was looking like the Hulk. I was like, man, I, I love this, you know, building my body up. And uh, so when I came out there, I was like, my clothes wouldn't fit me. So this is when you first started to work out. Yeah. Now, it seems from the outside that you've continued to work out the rest of your life. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Me and Sarah worked out twice this morning. So, you know, we do it at least four times a week. And do you like the process or you like the way it makes you look or the way it makes you make strong? What about it is appealing to you? Everything. The feeling of the iron, you know, and the uh, even the, the the stuff when you're running or do, doing cardio stuff. With a, I like all of it because I know I'm helping. I feel it, you know. Even when it, if it hurts, it's good hurt. Okay, you go back to New Orleans after you do your time. Is this when Joel essentially kicks you out of the house? It wasn't that, wasn't that early, no. When I go back from doing my time, it's 1964, and my daughter Ernestine was born, and uh, so we moved in in a house on Chestnut Street. And uh, let me see, 65, Hurricane Betsy came, and uh, me and Melvin started doing roofing work after that because his dad knew I was a roofer. And we made money doing that. That ran out. And this guy named Sidney and uh, George came by with a big bag of weed. They wanted to use my house to, you know, bag it up, manicure it, whatever, whatever they do with it. My children were at school. Joe was at work. They said, yeah, well, come on. So they gave us a big cake pan full of weed and then gave us a bag with the stems, which you got another cake pan out. And the weed was good. So we selling dollar joints, you know. And I went up to where Joel used to live. And uh, 
selling dollar joints. And all of a sudden, this guy dropped a handkerchief to the narcotics agent that Tangalai Red was on the corner. He was a dope pusher. And Tangalai Red had just gotten in the car and pulled off. By me being red, like, they jumped down on me, and I had about 20 joints. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to Angola. Charles already up there doing five years for two two joints. And uh, he was cutting sugar cane and all that, which was deemed inhumane later on. Anyway, my daddy got my lawyer, and he came up with something like motion to suppress the evidence, and uh, got me off, got me off, and you know, Whew. wow. <laughs> but how does your wife end up moving out of the house? That was until after. Uh, that was like seventy-two. That was way later. Okay, so what was happening between this thing with uh, getting arrested with the twenty joints and? Uh, then, uh, your wife moving out and you moving to New York, what were you doing in that period? Working on the docks, singing music, what? I was working on the docks, singing, recording, uh, I worked, uh, painting houses, uh, driving a truck. I worked with Bull Brothers Construction where they would, uh, putting cables under the ground, you know underground cables, they just dig some hard work, but it paid the, the riverfront paid the the best. If you got three days on the riverfront, you had a good payday. And uh, that's what I was doing. I didn't mind, and when I went to the hiring hall in the morning, they had a, you know, like a lot of, maybe hundreds of people out there get, trying to get work. And the guy would always hire me because they know I, work, I came to work. Because some guys would get out there and go doing a rain dance. You know, as soon as they get on the gig, man, I sure wish it rained so I can go home. I said, well, why'd you come out here, bro? Somebody else could have, who wanted to work could have had that job, you know. So tell us about ultimately going to New York. Well, that was after, uh, let me see, 70, Joel left, Jason was born in 71, Joel left around 73. And uh, me and Sarah went to New York to be with Charles, figured we could, you know, do some music stuff up there, which we did do some music stuff. We did like a trio called myself the Wild Chapatulas, which is my Uncle Jolly's Indian tribe. And uh, we played clubs. We did we did the one called Catch a Rising Star with Richard Bell's a comedian. He was the MC. And he told the people, so when these guys came out, we thought they was coming in to rob us, but <laughs> give them a listen. <laughs> they really sound good. I mean, we were jamming. I was playing keyboard and singing. Sarah was playing his jambe and singing, and Charles was blowing on singing. Okay, so you go back to New Orleans, and you end up working with your Uncle Jolly. Well, we let me see. 1976. Well, first of all, I got another story. Then 1975, this guy, he was a singer in New Orleans named Lil Sonny. And he, he's coming to me and my, my brother-in-law, Lucky. Hey, man, you screw me some coke, man. I knew a guy that had a coke. Kept telling him no. I don't know. I don't know about that, bro. You know, he kept on. I gave him and I scored some coke for him. I did it a couple of times. And he, he brought his this boy, Freddie, 
and I scored for Freddy twice. And the mother wit, you know, you know her, the mother wit, huh? That since you, <laughs> I didn't pay attention to it. And when I did pay attention to it, it was too late because uh, Freddy called me on the phone and said, hey, can you get some more? I said, no, man, the man gone out of time. Bro. And I said, well, you know, I'd get some hair on. When he said that, my heart just, I knew what the hell it was. I said, no, bro, ain't no deal, man. And I was helping a so-called friend out, you know. So I hung up. And my boy Poochie passed, and I was telling him about it. He gave me a joint, and I smoked it, and laying there just waiting because I knew something was going to happen. Next thing I know, I heard him running through the alley and banging on the door, and I got him walked in, and I had a little small window like I opened it. saw Freddie out there with a steel gray suit with a star skin hutch gun on him. I said, hey, Freddie. I said, I ain't no Freddie. That's Officer Sons. <laughs> See, I know. Uh, that's when I went to the court again. And first of all, the, the, my lawyer said, just pray you don't get this judge. And as soon as I got my papers, Judge Edward G. Boyle, the hanging judge. So me and Joel, going, my mom was dead then, so we, me and Joel was going up the steps on our knees at St. Anne's Shrine and going to St. Jude and saying our prayers. And, and I went to the court and was found guilty of two uh, sales of narcotics to an agent. And the man told me, so I sentenced you to one to 15 years in the federal penitentiary. And he said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to spend that sentence and put you on a three-year probation. I said, thank you, Honor. But I had to go pee in the bottle for about six months after that, you know, I'm walking out the courthouse, and this black dude who was the federal marshal, he was pissed off. He, he said, I don't know who you had in this courthouse, but, you, but these shackles was for your ass. He said, well, yeah. <laughs> you ain't got me now. I ain't coming back in here no more. And that was it with the judicial system. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, you had to be clean for six months. What was going on with you and the dope after that? Well, as soon as my six months was up, I went back to school again. I, I mean, I was kind of dead. I was like doing time right then. So tell me then, it's after that you work with your Uncle Jolly? Yeah, he called all of us down. Charles is still in the yard. And Art and Cyril's with the meters. So he called us and he said, I want to do my, my Indian music with me. And uh, so we went in the studio in and, and 1976 and done a Wild Tulas album with the Meters and the Neville Brothers and a guy named Willie Harper helping us do the background. And I mean, we went in, we didn't have to tell nobody what note to take. It, it was just, and we had never been together, all four of us. It had been two of us or three of us, you know. This was all four of us together. And it was just so easy. So, and the album came out so good, and he said, "Man, why want to be doing the Neville Brothers?" Because Jolly said that that her mama, had, our mama, had told him that, that she'd like to see all of us together. So, I said, "Yeah, man, that's a good idea." So, in 1977, we started rehearsing and stuff, and we got a, a deal with Capitol Records to make an album that Jack Nietzsche produced, and uh. Came out in 1978. That's when I was able to buy my 78 Thunderbird. And uh, uh, I guess that was the start of the Neville Brothers. Okay. From that point, is it pretty much go up and up and you're working on the road or is it dipped down again? Uh, it wasn't, we was working. I didn't, I had a, I didn't have to go back on on the riverfront anymore after that, because we started working regular, and uh, it was like to eighty one when we were playing at Tipitina's and Beth Miller came in, and I was singing "Tell Like It Is" and she just slid down off her stool like it was, you know, she dug it, and she asked us did we have a contract, but that was just a one one record deal with Capitol Records. He said, no, we don't have a record. She called Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert at A&M Records. She said, man, check these guys out, you know. So she set it up. So we had a chance to do an album for A&M Records. That was 1981. Uh, Joe Dawn was the producer. And that's when I'm saying, man, it's time for me to get off the pot, you know. So I was ready. I was scared. You know, it was like the, the kid in me, you know, just, I know about the streets, but I don't know about no rehab and all that stuff. But the manager at the time, his name was Bill Johnston. He set it up for me to go in this place called DePaul, which used to be a sanitarium. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, 
we had to go do this album in New York called Fire on the Bayou. And I so I brought enough drugs up there to hold me to come back. But I'm scared because I'm, you know, I don't know what no rehab is. And it was like the little kid in me was like, you know. So one one morning, about three o'clock in the morning, I'm in the, in the room. And this guy named Elliot, he was a a writer. He was doing a story on us. So he was in there. I'm playing the piano. My friend John Brenner's from Petaluma, California. He had a he had let me his recorder, tape recorder. And I'm playing Sam Cooke and the Soul So Were you there when they crucified the Lord? And he's so wonderful. And I had to stand up in front of my class in the sixth grade and repite, recite a poem called Lovely Lady Dressed in Blue, Teach Me How to Pray. And I started playing like somebody told me how to play it and how to sing it. And I recorded it later on one of my albums. But that was like the little kid in me. I I, I, I have a, that that recording, I call it my, my inspiration tape. Because I could hear the, the frightened Aaron Neville, you know. And uh, if you want, I'll send it to you. Uh, anyhow, that a lot of things happened on that on that session. Matter of fact, Whitney Houston and her mom sang background on some of the songs on Fire on the Body. And uh, Keith Richards said that to him that was the best album of the year. And uh, the string, I was doing Mona Lisa. And Joe Don got Leon Pendarvis, he was the keyboard player for Saturday Night Live. And Wardell Cazare, who's our friend from New Orleans, who's done a lot of Alan Toussaint stuff, a lot of bunch of other people's stuff. And Joe was hip to him, so Joe asked him, said, well, what else? Do you need a piano in your room? He said, no, I just need a tuning fork. So he wrote the choice with a tuning fork. And while we're in the studio, uh, the New York string section, they played Leon's version that was killer. <clears throat> and they're snickering at Wardell, like he's a country bumpkin or something, you know. He get put the put the music out there, and they played it. And after that, they had to get up and hit their batons on the on the music stand and give him his prop. And I, I had tears in my eyes. I said, "Man, give that man his prop," you know. And I was dedicating that song to my mom and dad. And uh, it was a very special recording for me. What did you learn in rehab? Well, I learned that uh, dope is not your friend. And that uh, when you take it, it's attacking your organs inside, you know. And when you get that good feeling, it ain't just no good feeling. It's doing something to your kidney or your liver, your pancreas or some shit, you know. And, uh, but, uh, it didn't stop me anymore. Uh, I stopped. Yeah, I stopped the, when I, that time. And the next time, but I had a 1991, we went on the road. The Neville's, Dr. John, Irma Thomas. We went to Japan, Australia, New Zealand. First night, I turned in the bed. And, and I tried to turn back. My back 
wouldn't turn. All I could do was roll out the bed, crawl to the phone, and call the, the road man. Say, John, come get me with a wheelchair. Got to go to the hospital. He came and got me. And they, they didn't know what was wrong. And I could, they didn't understand what I was saying. I don't know what they were saying. All I was saying, pain, hurt, pain, hurt. It was hurting everywhere. And uh, they was giving me Vicodin and shit and massages and whatever else they do. But none of it worked. So we were over there like a month. If I would have left, the gigs would have folded because my record was hit over there. It was uh, Everybody Plays the Fool. And so I would tell, tell him to roll me <clears throat> to the stage in the wheelchair and put a chair out on the stage. And I, I stand up and I hold, hold my thighs because it felt like they was opening up with the sciatica, you know. And I had to walk and I'd sit down on the chair. And once I started singing, I didn't pay attention to the pain. I looked at the audience and it was, you know, it was cool until the, the gig was over and then the pain come back and hurt everywhere. So uh, that was like a month. I came home. I went to one doctor. He said, oh, we got to go in. I said, no, I think I'll get another second opinion. And went to another doctor. He said, the last thing I want to do. Said, uh, said he had to have his back operated on. And he sent me to a stress relief chiropractor. And he told me to do a lot of walking, but also he gave me the Viking. And, you know, so you get hooked on him. And uh, <clears throat> so that was uh, 91. I was off and on it, you know. And then by 2002, I went into a rehab, another rehab. The same one I haven't had been in. So you went to rehab that time. What was different about going, to, other than you were in different drugs, what was different about going to rehab the second time? Well, that's one of the guys, Drew Pinsky. And you probably heard him. Of course. He said, he said, one's too many and a thousand's not enough. I said, damn, that makes so much sense. <laughs> one's too many and a thousand's not enough. And, you know, they give you all the history of it, too, about what it's doing to you and thing, you know. So uh, I got out of that, and I was off. That was like, I think, 2002. 2004, my wife, Joelle, had had this cough. And she worked at the hospital, so she said, I didn't go to a doctor. I know much, much as they know, you know. And, she, and our, our friend next door, Dr. Chris Boone, I said, Chris, would you come over here and take a look at, at Joel? And he came over and he checked out and he said, Joel, I think you should take a, get a CAT scan. So she went to get a CAT scan and the doctor said, wow, she had small cell lung cancer right close to her trick, so it was inoperable. And uh, the doctor said she had three months and something Punched me in the heart. Joel said, so in other words, you give me the death sentence. I said, oh, Lord. That was, I can't, not be, I can't explain that feeling. You know, so me and her and my sister, we started having a prayer vigil. We'd go to all the churches and pray. And, and 
she'll live by another three years. So. Now, that's a big factor in your life, religion in St. Jude. Mm-hmm. Will you ever question your faith, or you're always a believer? Always a believer. Like, people say, will you marry when you're... This is God's will, you know? And we get mad at, at Joel or God. I say, I know she's going to heaven because I watched her go through hell. But you also talk about going to pray at the shrine. Do you pray today and do you go to church today? I pray. I've, I've been doing my, since the pandemic, I've been doing it on TV. I, I say my rosary every day and watch the mass. And I just got prayers that I say. I got a little altar, a little uh, pew where I kneel on and say prayers, looking out at the, at the trees or whatever, you know. Okay, you in the book, you go on and on how much you love Joel. And you don't talk about any third parties, but were you faithful all these years? That's for me to know and for you to find out. <laughs> I mean, I told you about the, the, the two girls that had turned me on to it, and I don't know what happened because I was, I was inebriated. So just leave it at that. You know? Okay. So now, you know, Fio on the Bayou comes out. Bill Graham becomes your manager. So, you know, do you feel like you really had made it because you were frustrated before? What's the experience like now? You mean when Bill Graham came in? Yeah. Oh, he, he was knocking doors down for us. You know, he was like, he was showing us off. You know, this, this is the Neville's. I want y'all to check him out. You know, the Grateful Dead, Huey Lewis, uh, Santana, the uh, Rolling Stone. So we went on the uh, Amnesty Tour with U2 and Peter Gable, uh, Stang and John Baez, Miles Davis, a whole bunch of people was on that. So you're on tour, you know, constantly, and a lot of times with Household Name Acts, you know, the Rolling Stones, etc., did you hang with these people? Did you become friends, or did you pretty much just hang with your brothers? No, we all, I was friends with all of them. Me and Keith still friends, and, you know, he co-produced uh, my album, My True Story. And uh, Santana, he's like a brother. Huey Lewis, you know, uh, uh, what is his name? Jared Garcia, he, he, he and I used to talk together. And how did you meet Linda Ronstadt? Well, the Neville brothers were playing at the World's Fair in 1984 in New Orleans. We were playing at Pete Fountain's Club on the grounds of the, at the World Fair. And she was, Linda was there with Nelson Riddle's band at the amphitheater. And after her show, she came, somebody told me that the Neville brothers were playing, so she came to see us. Somebody told me she was in the audience, and I dedicated a song to her, and I called up on stage, but she told her, she told the press that she don't usually do nothing impromptu like that, but she wasn't going to say no to Aaron Neville. And uh, we sang some doo-wop together and all, and after the, I asked for an autograph, she said to Aaron, love, I'll sing with you anytime, any place, anywhere, in any key. And it, it was on then, so... Uh, that was 84. 85, me and 
Calvin Tucson was starting a thing called New Orleans Artists Against Hunger and Homelessness. And uh, I asked her to come down and do the benefit of it. She said, oh, sure. So her and the manager, Peter Ashby, came down. And we were down at Two Cents Studio. And the first thing we thought to sing together, because we both came up Catholic, was Ave Maria. And we sang that in harmony. And uh, Peter Ashby said, y'all should do a record together. I said, well, hey, I'm game for that. And Linda was game, so it, you know, that was 85, so it took a couple of years, but it was right on time. You know, when she called me to do the four songs on Cry Like a Rainstorm, and we did the Don't Know Much, and I told her, meet you at the Grammys. I was joking, but not joking, because it was that great of a song, you know, and sure enough. So I still, we talk, we talk, you know, every few days a week or something like that. So what was it like having that level of success after all these years? Well, it was great, man. I was able to do a lot for Gerald and kids and all, and, you know, try to right some of the wrongs, and uh, life was good. So is this all instinctive? You don't have to rehearse. You can just show up and sing no problem? Back then? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So then you're working with your brothers. You ultimately make solo albums. Do you feel at this end that you've gotten the respect and achieved the success you deserve? I, th- I, I think so. You know, I'm not, I appreciate the people that bought my records and came to my concerts and all, and I ain't got no regrets, you know. And, you know, you're on your bro- the road with your brothers. The money has to be split, you know, four ways, never mind the other players. How are you? How did you do and how are you doing financially? We did good. I mean, you know, we split it four ways, but Bob's done a record with Linda. That opened a lot of doors for us, you know. Then when I did the George John song, Grand Tour, that opened country people, you know, and... um. We we did good, you know, and like I, it, I feel like I played with the baddest band in the land, the Neville Brothers. Like this guy named Eric Cobb, who used to be our tech man and played keyboard. He used to announce us, said, New Orleans, the mighty, mighty Neville Brothers. They used to run a chill through me when they say that, because we were the mighty, mighty Neville Brothers. And so, you know, there's a hit you get performing live that you can't get sitting in your living room. So what was the key to winning the audience over? What do you mean? Like, You show up on stage, you get big applause. How do you make sure the audience is with you and lift the audience up through the show? Just don't go fake and be you. Be real, you know. Do what you do. This is what I do. I'm not going to tap dance or jump up and down. I'm going to sing, you know. And I'm going to make my voice touch you, touch something in you, because it touches something in me. Okay, you start to gain success. Everywhere you go, do people recognize you? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, hey, you can't help it. <laughs> and so, you like that or do you not like that? It's cool. You know, like, 
when we were living in the city, we'd be walking down the street and all of a sudden you might hear somebody hit their bridge. Legend, uh, OG, <laughs> stuff like that, you know. That's, it's cool. And how about ultimately being on TV and in movies? How did that come about? And did you enjoy that? I did. Uh, I think the first one I did was with Dennis Quaid and John Goodman and Jessica Lange and Timothy Hutton on Everybody's All American, which they did down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Then I did one in New Orleans with Xander uh, uh, Lee with, uh, with, who was it? Judge Ryan Hall and Nicholas Cage and I forget the lady's name. Anyway, I played a bartender in that one. I played a a jail a jail cell buddy with Mickey Rock in a movie called The Last Ride. So yeah. It was all cool. And then Joel dies, but ultimately you meet your new wife who's a photographer. How does that happen? How does that happen? Joel died January 5th, 2007. And I was a basket case. The doctor gave me some kind of nerve pill for my nerves and stuff. And every time I lay down, it felt like little things, creatures were scurrying around on the bed. I said, no, I can't take this. But meanwhile, Joel had all this narcotics there that she didn't want to take. She had morphine, uh, Percocet, Percodan, uh, but the other one is, I can't think of the name of it. But anyway, she had all this drugs, so I went to that. Because it was familiar. And then, but that ran out, I would get the doctors the right prescription. I, I could get them on the street, whatever, you know. And, uh, so 2008, you know, I was had to go on the road. Um, nobody else knew what I was going through. You know, that was my my solo. Uh, that was just for me. And uh, let me see. It get kind of emotional, you know. Anyway, the Neville's was, was going back. Joel, after she was diagnosed with the cancer, Hurricane Katrina came in 2005. So we moved to Nashville. And that's where she died, in Nashville. And uh, like I said, took all those drugs. And May, matter of fact, I met Joel in May, and I met Sarah in May, 2008. People magazine sent her to, to photograph the Nevilles for the, their return to the Jazz Fest since Katrina. And we did it at the Nevilles' office up on the balcony. And when I saw something about it, I just, I don't usually do that, but it's just, her, my eyes caught hers, and I just, I never stopped looking at it the whole time. She was taking the she was so professional, you know, she and she got the pictures just right. And after the session was over, everybody else left and I stuck around until she had never heard of the Neville Brothers. So 
I'll give a copy of our book and uh give let her hear some of the music, you know, and and I, I asked her phone number. She gave me her office number. And I waited a couple of days and I called. And it was cool, you know, so I started calling every other day. And we got to start getting closer and so I'd go up to New York and be with her. And by that time, I'd moved from Nashville to Covington, Louisiana. That's like about an hour and a half from New Orleans across the lake. And uh, so she would come there sometime. And uh, backs and forwards, and next thing I know, just talking about moving together. And uh and we trying to make sure we could, you know, buy something together and all. And so I want to check my my credit and stuff. And she looked at the credit, and my credit was down in, in the dumps. And I thought everything on up and up. But she started looking and finding all kind of discrepancies, uh, things getting, was missing. A lot of money was missing. And the business manager... We had to wind up suing to get some of the money back. And uh, so anyway, back and forth from New York. One time she was in Covington and was getting ready to go out to dinner. And I went in my pocket to get the car keys and, <laughs> and pulled the car keys out and about 10 wagons fell on the ground. <laughs> and Sarah, she had dated a guy who had who was a drug addict before, and she knew what it's about. She said, oh, no, not this shit again, no. So I had to make a choice. I gave her, I had about 200 pills. I gave her, she just discarded, and that was it. No more, no more opioids. So uh, here I am. With this November, we'll be married 13 years. Wow, great story. Let's go back to New Orleans. To what degree is New Orleans, although you don't live there anymore, the same or is it different after Katrina? It was different. I mean, it was like uh, that water had sit there for so long. And I'm telling them what was in that water from all of the, like they had these train cars out on the tracks with the, all these different chemicals in it and all that. Everything people had under these, you know, under the cleaning fluids, under the sink and all. <clears throat> dead folks, all that was in that water. And I got a friend of mine who still lived down there. Said she had never had an allergy, but now she had to get a shot, an allergy shot every month. So I don't know. And what about your kids? What are your kids up to and to what degree do you have a connection and support them? Oh, we talk all, all the time. Uh, well, you know, I haven't, he's on the road a lot. Uh, my son Jason, him and his wife, they have a band. Jason never in this Honky Soul Band. They do a lot of New Orleans stuff, but they got out of town too. They, they was just in somewhere in Mexico or something. My son Aaron, he does some kind of odd jobs. And my daughter, Ernestine, she works for the Civil Sheriff Department. Okay, Aaron, I want to thank you so much for taking time with my audience. You know, these stories are amplified, and there are a lot more in his book, which is very easy to read. 
So once again, Aaron, thanks for taking the time to tell your stories. Thanks for listening, Bob. You bet. <laughs> Until next time, this is Bob Left Sets. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.